the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Hey, it's John Warlow. I wanted to record this quick message to let you know that I've got a new book that's now available called The Art of Selling Your Business. And really, it's a distillation of some of the best practices I've heard from some of the smartest entrepreneurs I've interviewed for this show. You know, having done now more than 300 plus interviews for Built to Sell Radio, I've seen that there's this small group of founders who seem to really have incredible exits, ones where they make life-changing money from the sale of their company. And what I've tried to do is really analyze what are the transferable lessons among that small cadre of winning exits. I've put those into an action plan, a bit of a, a just add water recipe card for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. The book is called The Art of Selling Your Business. It's available anywhere you buy books. So right now, there's a lot of money chasing a few deals. Private equity has exploded. And with interest rates as low as they are right now, you're seeing a lot of private equity companies ginning up the value of businesses. And my next guest went to sell his company, did so, and ended up regretting it. Herein lies the six lessons Ryan Moran learned in selling to a private equity group. This is a cautionary tale, but I don't think it's all bad because there's lots of learnings that Moran shares that you can take away from your deal. Whether you're selling to a private equity group, a strategic or an individual investor, there's some things you can do to protect yourself. And Ryan is generous with his advice. Here to tell you the entire story is Ryan Moran. Ryan Moran, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. I'm really honored to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's amazing to have you here. Tell me a little bit about Sheer Strength. What did you guys do? So Sheer Strength was a sports nutrition company that was yeah. really early to the game in 2013 and 14 to dominating the Amazon platform, specifically in the supplement and bodybuilding space. So, okay. so in, in 2000, from 2012 until... Uh, uh, it, it may still be true now. Supplements were the number one, the number one market on Amazon, and so we carved out a specific niche that was people who were adding muscle, and that was our sports nutrition focus. And we were also in about a thousand retail stores. But about sixty to seventy percent of our revenue came from focusing on being the first mover in that space, specifically on the Amazon platform. So we sold supplements and pre-workouts and creatines and other consumables for for the bodybuilding crowd got it and and how did you separate i mean when i searched on amazon i get like hundreds of listings right how did you find your way to the top of the listing so people would actually see your stuff that was our bread and butter skill set so figuring out the amazon algorithm and the amazon platform was our secret advantage was our strategic way of staying ahead of everyone else and the Amazon platform is really driven by the number of sales through keyword. So if you search for fish oil on Amazon, 
the product that you click on and buy is like a vote. And Amazon will take those votes into consideration and rank products by how they convert relative to the other products. And so we got really good at optimizing for what Amazon needed and wanted. And we also had partnerships with other influencers. We sponsored the Olympia bodybuilding show and did a lot to build brand recognition and repeat customers on the platform. But to answer your question directly, we just got really good at knowing how the algorithm worked. So fascinating because if you think about it, and I'm sure you've given it a lot of thought, but as you, as a product gains momentum, it kind of takes a life of its own. Like it, it, it ranks because it's ranking, if you know what I mean. Like it yeah. starts to create its own momentum. Yeah. And the thing you can't do there is have a crappy product and a crappy customer experience that breaks that system. So having first mover advantage can either make or break a company. And that was why at the very beginning of the company, there was this term that was being thrown around because Amazon was still a bit of a wild west. They called them Amazon businesses. And I hated that term because I didn't want to have an Amazon business. I want to have a business that had real customers that were raving fans that wanted to pay a premium for working with our brand. And we just happened to leverage the Amazon platform. Interesting. And did you guys get into subscription? I know that you can now subscribe to certain products. Did you guys do any of that stuff? Yeah. So we were actually we were one of the first brands on the platform to be able to take advantage of subscribe and save as it started to expand to the rest of the platform. And it was a, a huge win for us. So obviously the hmm. more members that you can have on subscribe and save giving recurring revenue gives you more stabilization and can help with the valuation of your business when you go to sell. So we were, we were early on in that game, but we, we were able to take advantage of that. What proportion of your sales were, were, uh, which subscription are recurring? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> I should know those types of numbers. Um, but it was it was an interesting time because subscribe and save was being rolled out as we were scaling the company. So it, it I would have loved to have prioritized subscribe and save as like the thing we built the company around. But Amazon didn't have that ability to do yet. And it was only until about two, maybe two and a half years into growing sheer strength that subscribe and save even became an option for us. And then we sold in year four. God, wow. Year four. That's a fast run. I want to get yeah. to the sale. Just before I go there though, let's, I just want to understand the business model. So I'm assuming you're not manufacturing this stuff in some lab somewhere. You, you are effectively putting your label on someone else's stuff that you are buying. Is that the, was that the business model? Like, almost, they call it like drop ship almost, or something like that? Well, almost all of our products were custom. I mean, but the way that we went to market, our, our you know, race to market was to private label something that was good enough for us to put our name on it. And as soon as we were able to test that there was a market there, then we went back and formulated our own custom formulation for it. And that, oh, was, that was working with the lab to come up with something that we were really proud to put our name on and, and then building that into our sales channel to be able to have the best product in the marketplace. But, Got it. Uh, but you're right. We, we were not making the products ourselves. We had several different manufacturers that we worked with closely and uh, they shipped straight to Amazon and then we fulfilled through Amazon. So what kind of margins are you making? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get a sense because you, you're, you're, you're selling on Amazon and you got to buy the stuff and you got you to give Amazon a cut. Like what would have been like a reasonable margin at the end of the year uh, 
in, in your business? Like Supplements have great margins. So we were operating at about a 40% profit margin. Wow. Now, is that gross profit on what you sold or net profit after paying everything? That's, that's contribution margin. Okay. Um, after Amazon takes their cut. So that's, okay. that's before, that's before the employees are paid. Right. But that is, that is on the actual products themselves. Yeah. That makes sense. Got it. Okay. That's helpful. And, and so how big did you get this company in four years to the tune that you decided to sell? Right before the acquisition happened, we had our first million dollar month. So we were pacing. I, I mean, I think the 12 month trailing was just over $8 million when we sold, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. we, we were on a pretty aggressive growth trend as we were going to market. And, and, you know, yeah. Part of that's intentional. You want to be selling while you have that aggressive growth happening. Mm-hmm, um, but mm-hmm. we were we were having million dollar months in the last few months when we owned the company. And so it begs the question: Why sell? It sounds like a <laughs> <the> golden goose. <laughs> I, I mean, so I sold when I was twenty nine years old, John. And wow. when, at twenty nine years old, I you know I had been an entrepreneur for a decade, but I had never built. I never had a ten million dollar company, and there was. I, I can say this. My partner and I had grown the company to our capacity. Like that, that was our capacity as entrepreneurs. <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you, you know, one of us wanted to sell more than the other did. And but, which, which camp were you in? <laughs> <laughs> um, my partner wanted to sell more than I did. Oh, really? Okay. And, but, I, but we were ride or die together. You know, and, he and I had built a company to our capacity collectively. You know, the two of us had exceeded our expectations. We're running a, a business that was pacing low eight figures and we didn't know how to take it to 25 or 50. Now I'm, I'm the type that is like, well, let's figure it out. Let's find, like, <laughs> let's make some mistakes, man. And Matt is more like, you know, I'm not, I'm not so much sure I can keep going at this torrid pace. And to his credit, I mean, he carried, I was visionary. He was integrator and he carried that company on his back and it freed me up to be crazy idea person. And let's do this and let's do this and let's do this. And that, but neither of us had built real infrastructure when it comes to building quality teams that could support that. And so it honestly felt like a bit of a shaky foundation of we've never done this before. We're beyond our capacity and we need to go get real infrastructure help. And I would rather be a part of somebody who is taking it to 25 and $50 million and watch how they got it done than try to figure it out myself. But I mean, the real answer is we out exceeded our capacity and we were ride or die together. And if one of us wanted out, the other was going to go with, was going to back that decision. Were you guys 50, 50 partners? Yes, we were. So what was your next step? So you, you make the decision to sell. Where does it go from there? Oh, John. So this is the part of the story where I'm the warning sign. Okay. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm the warning sign at this point because especially this, we sold the company, I think 2017. And we were the first in our space to go to, like we were the first Amazon based company to have, like a significant acquisition. And so we were a bit of trailblazers in this space. It was still like, it was kind of like buying websites was 10 years ago. You know, there's, there's not really a, appropriate market valuations for something like that. 
And so we made all the mistakes for everybody else. And so I'm a little bit of a warning sign. And some of these things are still relevant. And I'll go into those things that I wish I had done differently. Mm-hmm. But our, our next step was there was one brokerage that was going out and specializing in Amazon-based businesses. And they approached us and they gave us numbers that surprised us. You know, numbers that we, we, of what they thought we could get for the business. And so we had a non-binding agreement with them that allowed them to take us. The, it, all it did was give them an exclusive to negotiate on our behalf. And they would go start courting offers. I wish that we had gone the traditional M&A route. You know, I, I wish that we had professionalized the business and gone out and gotten the right partner but this was a team that specialized in selling things, not professionalizing things. So we looked at the numbers that they quoted us as what they thought they could get us. That sounded exciting. Didn't cost us anything. We negotiated on terms in terms of uh, a percentage that it would cost. And we went to market. And honestly, we were just like, eh. I mean, we don't think anything is going to happen, but maybe something will. And to our surprise, some people came knocking. Hmm. That was our what next did you? Super helpful. I've got lots of additional uh, follow-ups. What did you think the company was worth um, before the broker sort of threw out their number? I'm a salesman, John. So <laughs> I, I, my, my approach to most things is you, you come up with the number that you're really happy with and, you, and then you justify it. Mm-hmm. Um, on, on paper, I thought the business was worth about $18 million. So we are, our EBITDA was 3.2, 3.3 million dollars. Mm-hmm. So I was expecting about a six times EBITDA going to market. Mm-hmm. And so I, I expected, you know, 18 to 20 million dollars when when we when we went to market. Got it. Got it. And what the broker thought think that you might get? The broker thought we were being optimistic. Um, but they also they they, like, they sold us. So you know they they thought that they thought that they might be able to sell the company on the following year's EBITDA, meaning like projected EBITDA versus future, actual yeah. EBITDA. So they they thought five times future EBITDA, which would have put us at about $20 million. <laughs> they were not able to do that. Um, and so based on current EBITDA, they thought that we were being optimistic. And to be honest with you, I felt a little bit um, bait and switched at that conversation. Mm. So if I understand correctly in the, in the kind of lead up to you agreeing to sell through this brokerage, they kind of said, well, we'd probably get five times future, which mm-hmm. gets you to 20. Mm-hmm. And then after you sign the deal, they're like, well, maybe you can't get future. Maybe we got to <laughs> think about past and maybe it's not six. It's a little closer to five. Like was that, that's kind of the, why you felt a good summary, John. It's like you were yeah. in the room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. If, so if, if, if it's okay with you, John, I, I'd like to say what happened when we went please. to market. And, and also I think the biggest mistake we made that like, if I could give one person just one thing to do differently when they go to market, this is the thing, like buy me a steak later, man, like this, this, <laughs> this will pay for it. So we went to market and we started getting we started getting LOIs, you know, phone calls and LOIs from, it felt weird. It felt like we were getting married after one date, you know, like we hop on a phone call, we get an LOI, WTF is, is this about? And the LOIs were, 
you know, in, in the 16 to 17 and a half million dollars, mm-hmm. um, which looked close to in range. And I think the one we signed put us at 17.5. Um, so we were you know, mostly happy with that, with that price. Here's what I wish we had done differently. I wish we hadn't waited for an LOI. I wish we had come to the conversation with our own list of terms. I wish we had come into the conversation not being the price taker, but the price setter. I wish we had come into that conversation saying, hey, here's what we're, I I would hop on those those phone calls and feel like I was selling ourselves and the company. I wish we had just known that we had a great company and said, these are my terms. Our terms are, we're looking for a company that has done this before in our space. And we're looking for a company that has experienced growing companies from $10 million to $25 million. We're looking for a company that knows the value of the growth of this space and the growth of our expertise and is willing to pay for it. I do not want to do a long negotiation process. Our price is $20 million. I'm open to terms. I'm open to earnouts, but those are our terms. And I'm looking to have X number amount of it up front. I wish we had just come to the conversation with that, with those terms. But instead, since we didn't do that, we were evaluating every conversation about just on one thing. And it was how much we thought we could take home from it. And the result was we ended up partnering with a company that I wish we hadn't partnered with. I wish we had gone in a completely different direction, but we didn't, we saw it as they had the pile of money. And so they were the hot girl at the dance. Mm. Here's what I learned, John. I learned that there are people in the private equity and acquisitions world who wake up every day wishing that there were good companies to buy. I was the hot girl at the dance the whole time and I didn't know it. I was the hot girl at the dance who doubted her own attractiveness, right? Everybody saw it but me. And I had the leverage and I didn't know I had the leverage. Like I, I, I had, there were more people who wanted to buy the company than there were companies available. So if, is, if, if entrepreneurs get that, they're like, they're the one with the asset. They're, they're the one who put in the blood, sweat, and tears to build this thing that's spitting off millions of dollars worth of profit. You're the hot girl at the dance. Everybody wants you. There are investors and buyers and, and competitors who want you. And so had I known that, I would have relaxed around the timeline. I wouldn't have been in a hurry to sign the first LOI that came to my door. I wouldn't have cared if I said no to that private equity group. I wouldn't have any problem walking away from the deal. So I wish I'd shown up to every conversation with my terms and been willing to walk away from every deal. Such good advice. So let's get into the terms for a moment. So again, you wanted... uh, Someone who knew the industry, someone who had done it before, 10 to 25, someone that was going to value your company in the $20 million range. And you, you, were, you were open to a portion of that on an earnout. Is that right? Sure. Sure. Yes. And so when you got these offers, you, you mentioned you settled in around 17 and a half. How did it compare with what you were looking for? Other than obviously well, not quite the 20. So once again, there's things I wish I would have done differently because mm-hmm. we signed a 17, 17.5 LOI and then, then came the due diligence process. And the due diligence process is where they look at 
add backs and they look at things that they wouldn't qualify as, as, as contributing to the bottom line and they start tearing apart your books. And it felt a little bit like an episode, like a bad episode of the bachelor is like, <laughs> like we got our first rose, you know, and then, and then, you know, you start getting into a competitive process and then you get another rose, you know, you go into the next stage of the deal. And by the time the deal is three months in, you have so much invested in it. Like you might as well just finish the show. You know, you might as, and that process sucks. You know, I, and, and, and it was, and it was just because I didn't set proper terms up front. If I had set proper terms up front, when they knocked our EBITDA from 3.3 to 2.9, I would have walked away, but we were so far into the process that it's like, all right, are we going to say no to a, an eight figure check? Not at this pro, not at this point. Are we going to go back to market and start all over again? Not at this point. I wish I had been willing to go back to market. I, I wish that I had been willing to just say, all right, guess you guys weren't the one. We'll go to someplace else. I would have made way more money and I would have found a much better partner had I done that. But I, I did not know that going into it. Hmm. Interesting, because in on one level, you know, you are clearly a, a fast growth company. Four years, you're you're almost you're trailing twelve months is over ten million dollars. Uh, you were receiving these LOIs in in uh, you know surprising like like easily. So, in a way, I'm surprised that it didn't. I I don't want to say dawn on you because I don't I don't mean it in a negative way, but I'm surprised that it didn't connected. Oh man, we're, we're attractive here. Like we're these crazy offers. <laughs> well, it didn't, it did in that sense. It was just a new world for us. I didn't know anything about the private equity world. Then I was an, I was a scrappy entrepreneur who started this company with 600 bucks. You know, I started this company with $600, grew it to a run rate of eight to $10 million in four years with a team of four people. I didn't know anything about the private equity world. You just assume that because they're called private equity, they're smart investors. I learned that's not the case. You know, like there's, it, it was hugely affirming for me after everything was done because I realized, oh, there's not some like big controller out there who knows anything more than me. It was just how I viewed myself in the process. And I viewed, I viewed, I put the money on a pedestal versus my business on a pedestal. Hmm. And, and so I found myself chasing the money versus chasing what was best for the business. And what, had, what would have been best for the business would have been partnering with the, the best firm that knew how to grow our types of companies. That's what, have, what would have made me the most money. I, I am completely guilty of playing that deal for the short term rather than the long term. We even had the conversations amongst ourselves Hey, if these people run it into the ground, we got our money up front. I should have never said that, that statement. I should have said, let's partner with the company that we know is going to grow this business into five times what it is now, because that's when we're going to make the most money. But two kids from, you know, 
Midwest America who started this company with 600 bucks. We didn't know. We just didn't know. We just didn't know. And so when you, when the private equity company started to retrade and, and they, they effectively uh, pulled apart your books and said, it's not 3.2, it's 2.9, uh, they then uh, presumably lowered the corresponding Correct. offer. Correct. Yeah. So the, the offer was, was a multiple of EBITDA. It ended up being five times EBITDA. Yeah. Not, not a number. Yeah. So they calculated the 17.5 based on whatever the stated EBITDA was, which if my math is right, is 3.3 mm -hmm. mm -hmm. or 3.5 or whatever that is. And then they knocked sure. it down to 2.9. Yeah. Yeah. What was your reaction when that happened? When they knocked down the EBITDA? Mm-hmm. And they let you know that, you know, like that was going to obviously affect the final sale price. They were cool about it. And so I didn't have a lot of negative reaction to it. I had, um, I had a lot of faith that this company knew how to grow our business after the transaction until like the closing bell. What happened? And Let me just say they started bringing in members to the team. They started hiring and we were really confused. We were really confused about why they were hiring the people that they were hiring to grow the team. And that was a red flag that we should have paid more attention to. But in our minds, they've done it before. In our minds, they know better. Mm-hmm. They have bigger goals. Like this is their baby now. This is their company now. These are their mistakes to make. I wish I had paid more attention to those warning signs. Usually, with a private equity deal, there's you know they'll, they'll buy seventy percent of the company, eighty yeah. percent of the company, and then sort of have you roll a bit of equity into a new entity. Yeah. Is how did they structure that piece with you guys? Yeah, it was it was uh, it's either sixty or seventy percent mm -hmm. that we got or mm -hmm. that we sold. And then we, we maintained either 15 or 20% of it back. So they sold, they, they, they bought 60, you guys were equal partners. So you had 20 yeah. each to, to make yeah. it. Got it. Got it. Got it. And, and do you continue to hold that 20 or how does like, do you, what are your expectations around? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I did until the acquiring company went bankrupt. Oh, so that's 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 a bit of a twist <laughs> so what does that mean how does that well, impact you guys well john i mean well it i don't I mean how many curse words can i say <laughs> on this podcast john so, as many as you like man go for so, it <laughs> i mean um it fucks us over that's what it does to us mm -hmm. so yeah so so basically the, the the chapter two if you will is and 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 i mean look to be fair there were things outside of the acquiring company's control, but there were things within the co acquiring company's control too. Mm -hmm. um, bad, there's bad expensive management brought in. You know, man mm -hmm. management that that put strain on the books and that did not know how to grow this company and did not allow my partner to grow the company in the way that he had executed for years. So they didn't liberate the entrepreneurial spirit. They ha hamstrung it. Hmm. They bu 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 bureaucratized it. 
they they made it bulky. They made it hard to be nimble. Compet- uh, competitors started passing us. That brought down cash flows further. There was debt on the purchase that made it hard for us to execute upon the plans that we wanted to do. Meaning the private equity group borrowed money to Correct. buy you guys. Correct. So you, the company had to pay back that debt with the profits you were making as its first Correct. priority. Okay. Correct. Now, had things continue to grow, it's a great strategy. Mm-hmm. But when the company has debt and poor management, that can't happen. Um, and, and so there was actually a point where they fired the management, freed up my, my uh, co-founder to lead the company for a while. He brought it back to where it needed to be. And then they brought in more bad management. Hmm. And so it was just, it, it, the company that bought us just didn't have experience in this sector and in this type of business. And so they were really good in other sectors. And I think they were diversifying in their acquisition of us. They mm-hmm. wanted to go in a different direction. And I totally get that. Um, but it hurt us in the long run. And so the, so the company went bankrupt the, 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 and they had to sell assets. And the, the bank chose who was uh, going to get the assets that were the company. I put in a very aggressive bid. I wanted to buy that company back. I wanted to take that company back to its previous glory. Unfortunately, they went in a different direction. Got it. Got it. And so to be clear, the company uh, went bankrupt as opposed to the private equity group that invested. Is correct. that correct? correct. Okay. That's correct. And so when they go bankrupt, again, I'm not a lawyer, so this I want to make sure I'm getting it. They effectively wash out any shareholders. So you had this 20% holding, you and your partner each 20, and that became effectively worthless. That's zero. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That was, I have somewhere, did I frame it? I framed the bankruptcy notice. Is it in the frame? <laughs> That's a morbid thing to do, man. No, because here's, here's the thing, John. So you have to realize like, like the reason <laughs> I'm like, for a while, I was really embarrassed to talk about this story mm-hmm. because I feel like I left millions of dollars on the table and my baby went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. You're like, that, that's like the scarlet letter. <laughs> it's like this like, entrepreneur who went, who went bankrupt. But, but I learned so much in this process, John. And here's what I came out realizing. I came out realizing I built that company. Mm-hmm. I came out realizing I was better than them. And like these people that I put on a pedestal who came to the table with a big check that I just you know, knew how to professionalize businesses. I realized that I was better at my game than them. Now they're, they're better at me, they're better than me at lots of things. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I trusted that company to, to do what I, what, what they were good at. It was my error in judgment that, that put the company in that position but it made me realize that I had real talent because when I walked away, the company went bankrupt. It made me realize I had something special. And I, I don't know, John, I think every entrepreneur it's for at least part of their career carries some sort of imposter syndrome. Mm, yeah. And there's, there, there's some aspect of like, am I really good at this? <laughs> 
Like, am I really qualified to build a company that's worth $17.5 million or has $3 million in profits per year? Like, did I get lucky? Was it good timing? Did I have the right partner? And guess what? All those things are yes. Mm. I had an amazing partner. My timing was perfect. I chose a great business and I had the right skill set to be able to make that grow. And the fact that it went under after I stepped away, it should really be once the new team stepped in um, because Matt, you continue to run the company and did, is just an amazing, amazing entrepreneur. But the fact that when I went away, the company went under meant that I had something. I, 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 I was a huge value creator. And so I, so I framed the bankruptcy notice and it's hanging <laughs> somewhere in my house. That's really cool. And, and so what was it about, like, I, I'd be curious to know how they structured your role in the company after the investment. Uh, because you and your partner, you mentioned uh, one was, you were the visionary, your partner yeah. was the integrator, which is a reference to the EO model, uh, yeah. uh, sorry, EOS model um, with integrators and, and visionaries. Yeah. What was the structure that came in, the new management? I mean, were, did you have a boss all of a sudden? Or, or you know, like, how does that work? So I, I worked into the deal that if, if somebody else is going to be stepped, they, they were adamant that they were going to bring on a CEO. And so they said, I, I worked into the, into the deal that if they were going to bring on a CEO that I wanted to step down, I wanted to step away. That I did not want to be working for somebody else. That I was happy to become an advisor at be, because our we were kind of at the capacity of our talent at the time i said you know like i don't really have a role right now like i'm the visionary and we're not really able to execute upon my vision uh we just we just haven't built that infrastructure yet so if you're going to bring in a new visionary i'm replaced and i i don't want to be involved and so i was no longer involved the day we closed hmm um, I took a little bit of a, a smaller cut of the deal. Like, I mean, like a couple percentage points, my, my co-founder got a, like a little bit more money than mm -hmm. me. Um, because, uh, is so, some, some way that we factored in like salary into the overall valuation of the company. Mm -hmm. And so I, I went away. Um, I, I think it might have been, I didn't get five times my salary in the deal. And mm -hmm. uh, I was only paying myself like 60 grand a year or something. So it wasn't, right. wasn't a huge deal, but um, I didn't get that in the, in the total amount that was, that was closed and Matt got a salary and I didn't. Um, and so I walked away, Matt stayed involved and uh, I got a little bit less of a payout, but I was, I was out. And so that's, that's how it was structured. I, I walked away. Yeah. 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 And in retrospect, uh, what, what, what might you do differently given everything, all the water under sure. the bridge and everything that, that happened, uh, specific to your role after the sale, have you reflected on how you might structure that differently? That's a great question. I've never been asked that before. And today now, um, I really like advising companies. So earlier today, I have an investment fund. Now I raised $1.6 million to deploy into other 
similar e-commerce companies. It's called the Capitalism Fund. Um, is my new company. It's called Capitalism.com. And how did, first of all, how did you get the sure. website Capitalism.com? You must have spent sure. a fortune. Uh, I did, um, but I it was a, a a part domain that was owned by somebody who was very committed to the cause of capitalism and was wait, was sitting on it for sixteen or some years. <laughs> and um, he said he got two offers a year. I contacted him and gave him the vision for the company that I wanted to build. It was a vision that he thought was worth, uh, you know, worth supporting. And so he had a price and I paid the price. What was the price? It was, uh, it was low six figures. It was just over a hundred thousand dollars. Awesome. Yeah. Good for you. That's great. Yeah, thank I, you. So that's capitalism.com for everybody Correct. listening. Yeah, so, yeah, so, like, so that's the name of my podcast website. and uh, name of my podcast, name of, uh, of my blog and name of my company. But, so go back. So, so yeah, question, so, how so would you structure earlier, it differently? Earlier today, I was on a, a call because we're considering investing in a company through mm -hmm. my capitalism fund. And, you know, in 30 minutes, I created a lot of value for that company. And I really enjoyed going through that business and giving my recommendations for what I think they should do next. I wish I had taken that type of a role for sheer strength once I left. You know, I, I, um, one of the things in kind of one of our postmortems, if you will, right before the company went out of business or, or was bankrupted and, and sold to other management was one of the people who bought it said, you know, I don't know that I realized that you actually did want to be involved. We tried to kind of respect your desire to be out of the business and didn't realize that you still had a lot of value to bring to the table. And I said, I didn't even realize, I know that I realized that either. I don't know that I really enjoyed being an advisor to a company from an outside perspective. It's something that I've learned in, in the years that have followed. So I, I wish that I had taken more of that active advisor role of saying, you guys should do this and you should do this and we should go here. I almost wish that I had become a mentor to the new CEOs that they had, that they had brought on. But I believed that they knew more than me about how to grow a company. And I undervalued my own unique contribution to the direction of the company. Hmm. And that's what helped me learn and grow so much as a human being. But unfortunately, I learned by making mistakes. How I run into walls and adjust. How would you structure that advisory relationship if you had it to do all over again so that it wasn't just titular in form? It wasn't just you had the title of advisor. They actually either had to listen to you or were strongly encouraged to listen to you. Because clearly you had, you had a big chunk of your wealth tied to this 20%. Yeah. So you had skin in the game. Uh you know, oh, the founder wants to, you know, like, like, how do you avoid just them paying lip service to you as, and, and actually having to, to really, you know, listen to your advice? I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't structure it that way. If, if they're, if they're not going to listen to my feedback, then, then it's their mistakes to make. I, I, I just wish that I had been much more assertive with what I knew was best. Like, I know I keep making this point, but every time I walked into that office, I still kind of had this belief of like, I was second. Like I, I, not that I worked for them, but like they were, they were the big shots and I was the small potatoes. And I wish I had recognized that that wasn't the case. And I wish that I had been 
willing to say in the room, look, if you guys don't listen to me, you're fucked. Like, I and I wish I would have used that language, but in that room, in that atmosphere, it would have been very unprofessional. I wish I just didn't care. So I actually wouldn't have structured it for them to have to listen to me because I like having that liberation of being able to give advice that is very truthful. And, and I, and I, it, it this is much more a story about me owning my own position in where I add value than it is to anything else about how I wish I had protected myself in this way or structured it in this way. I wish I had just known my own value and fallen on that sword. How would you characterize the cultural difference between the, 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 the private <laughs> equity group and, and you and Matt? Uh. <laughs> Um, I think there is just a difference between an entrepreneurial spirit and a corporate environment. How would you characterize that? Slow. Um, structured. Instead of fast, nimble, and dirty. Dirty is the right word. Fat, fast, nimble, and humble a willingness to make mistakes, a um, respect for the grit, a relentless service to the customer. Ah, that's such it, man, John. That's such a good question. It was, it was the difference between a relentless service to the customer and a relentless desire to grow bottom line profits because they're different and one drives the other. Like relentless service to customers drives to profit. But when you're managing a bulky payroll with debt and boards and quarterly presentations and trying to not get foreclosed on, it becomes much more complicated than it is about serving the customer. And so you miss that service element, which is what drives all business. So as soon as you lost sight of the customer, you're out of business. And and I find that the that that was too jarring of a switch of going from relentless service to the customer to satisfying the board. The customer got lost. And because of that, the company wasn't able to stay in business. It certainly sounds like the 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 eye was not on the right things. I also heard you characterized with some sort of qualitative adjectives, small, nimble, humble, gritty, the opposite of which I'm assuming you referred to private equity group was, you know, big, structured, hmm. and perhaps arrogant. Yes. When the private equity group took on debt in order to buy the company who guaranteed the debt the the well the bank took an equity stake okay so so it was guaranteed by the company's assets uh, okay so you didn't you or the you know the limited partners of the private equity didn't didn't personally guarantee any of the debt I didn't. I don't know about, as far as I know, the, the private equity group didn't. Yeah, usually not. It's just yeah. bank, it was just backed by the company. 
I've heard of some slimy deals where, where the, the founder sells and the private equity group has the founder effectively co-sign oh. the debt that they take on to buy the guy. It's like- Oh my goodness. <laughs> I've never, yeah. Anyways, but that was not what happened in your case. No, it was not. What other question, again, forgive the technical question, but I'm, I'm curious. You mentioned you're paying yourself like around 60 grand a year. Clearly your market value, given everything you know about the internet and so forth is much more than that. Did you normalize uh, your salary in your profit and loss statement before you took the company to market? Or was that one of the adjustments that the private equity group made after in the due diligence process? It was one of the adjustments made. We didn't normalize anything. Um, Got it. We were, we were taking bonuses along the way and we had mm-hmm. plenty of profits to bonus ourselves out. Mm-hmm. But uh, all of that you know, was adjusted during the due diligence process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, lots of things I would do differently, but we learned on the fly. It's, I'm so grateful for you sharing, um, but you still walked with some good cash yeah, in sure, your jeans. Right. Like, yeah. like, like what a dick am I for complaining about only walking away with, you know, 5 million bucks, you know, right. like, like, like what a dick thing to say, but, but yeah. it, it's, it's just one of those things where, you know, you tell people, most entrepreneurs get one shot at this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I'll get another shot. Like I'll, I'll, I'm, I was 29 when I sold them 33 now. Like I've started other companies. I invest in other companies. Now I got to learn from my mistakes. I'll get other shots. Not everybody got the, gets a second shot. And so some people take that regret to their grave and that, that is no fun. And so the more that I can kind of speak out against that, the more that I know I can help the entrepreneur who has had this dream for a long time and make that a reality. Yeah. Yeah. Well said indeed. Um, did you do anything with the money? Like, I mean, again, you're 33, you'd be, you know, completely excused if you went out and bought some ridiculous car or some fancy house, but tell me you did something with this, this, yeah, this money. Yeah, sure. I mean, like, so I'm, I'm, I, I own a lake house here in, in Austin, Texas, awesome. paid cash for it. Um, I'm, I'm in it right now, right? It's fix it up exactly as I wanted to, right? I have my, my Tesla Model S P100D. You know, it's, it's sitting it. in my garage charging right now. Um, I, you know, I made some investments. I started my new business mm-hmm. and, it, and you know, what you realize is, uh, I felt different for like two weeks. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and now it's like, I have the house I want. I have the car I want and I am still left with all my junk, you know, all my internal junk, all my internal beliefs, all of my uh, self-doubts. And that is when you really get to discover who you are. And, and that, is, uh, that is the most interesting time when you realize that you, you've become something, but you're the same person. And now like the real internal work begins. And uh, I feel like I'm just getting started. Like, I feel like I have paid for me to go under the hood and discover who I am and what I want and what I want to do. And now I'm like just starting chapter two. And that that's an exciting place to be. It, it certainly is. And I'd be curious to know, have you, have you come across any resources that have been helpful in helping you reconcile 
the stuff under the hood, any courses, retreats, uh, you know, books, anything that you could share with folks. how much time we got. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of where to take this, John, because I could take the answer to this question in, in a, in several different directions. Um, I mean, I could take, take this in the therapy direction. Mm-hmm. I could take this in the ayahuasca direction. You know, I could take this in the spirituality direction. I could take this in multiple ways. But all of those routes and modalities that I've used, tested, or discovered just come back to an awareness and a piece about who you really are and how much energy we spend trying to create an identity that is not who we really are. It's like constructing this identity to be facing the world rather than uncovering what is there like all modalities come to that like therapy will expose the roles that you played in your family and the stories that you believe from your parents and the way that that structured your beliefs about the world ayahuasca will take you to planet zarkon where you don't have an identity and uh make you realize that you're one with everything and that the whole ego structure is man-made and 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 made up and that you didn't need money in the first place and then the spirituality route will take you to your connection with whatever you call god or whatever you call a higher power and how your identity is more real in that than it is in whatever we identify with in this plane Um, And so people get there in different ways, but you kind of realize that all the things that you put on a pedestal never deserve to be on a pedestal. You don't deserve to be on a pedestal. There is no pedestal. Um, We're just making it up as we go, but you can make it up consciously. So you can get there in many different routes, but that's kind of the, the end of the story. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And does it? Cause I think I just went into the pile of woo and yelled cannonball. Kumbaya. No, I think it was, yeah, look, I think, uh, I think it was great. You know, like uh, having a company fills our egos, right? Like I think a lot of entrepreneurs, it it puffs us out and makes us feel like we're important and people acknowledge us for that. And then when, when you sell, you get a bunch of money in the bank, but you're no longer that person anymore. That's right. That's right. And, and, and now you have to completely rebuild what you believe is yourself. Mm-hmm. And that can really trip you up if you, mm-hmm. if you believe that you are your company or that you believe that you are an entrepreneur or that you believe that you are the construct that you built in order to become a successful entrepreneur. Yeah. And, and I think especially when the the terms under which you separate from your company are, allow me to use this term, it's not right, but it'll do as violent as they were with you ah. in the sense that, that it's, it's not a graceful exit where they had the party and there's, you know, years of service where you're an advisor and you're the sage yeah. wisdom. It's like, boom, all of a Ooh, sudden, you're out. You're out, right. Yeah. Like, but, you know, and so that, that violent exit, I think can, uh, can exacerbate that. For, for sure. There's, there's a, like a whiplash. Mm. It's like, there's this void that is created on the other side of it. And Mm -hmm. then you're just left with you and your stuff. (laughs) And so obviously you've done lots. Would you, again, if it was a buddy of yours, just sold this company for a truckload of money, is, 
what would you suggest they do as their first step? Oh man. Uh, First thing I'd recommend is they do nothing for six months. I mean, don't invest the money because the biggest thing is that people are going to think that they have to like, they haven't normalized having that money in the bank. Mm -hmm. So don't go buy a bunch of index funds and hiring financial advisors. Cause you feel like you have to do it. You don't have to do anything. It's your money. Mm -hmm. Just, 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 just enjoy having a big number there for a Mm -hmm. second. You're not going to miss the opportunity of a lifetime in six months. You don't have to buy Bitcoin. Okay. (laughs) Just, just hang out for six months. Um, Don't start another business for six months. Don't market yourself as an investor or an advisor for six months. Like go, go do dumb things. Like go to the beach, go read books, go write, go be with your family, go get bored, go rake some leaves, go wash your car, (laughs) go, go like do, go things that go do things that you think are poor people things like, like mow your own grass, like do, do the things that are mindless, that bore you, that allow your brain to just like normalize your new life. Then six months from now, all the businesses that you start, all the investments that you make will be from choice, not from need. When you're operating a company, you do a lot of things from need. Got to make payroll. Got to make investors happy. Got to make a sale. Got to grow profits. And you lose sight of why you got into this in the first place, which was to have a freaking amazing life. So when you've got the money to do nothing, now you have the power to be able to do everything from choice, which is go build a freaking amazing life. But what I did and most of my peers have done is you go from hustle to hustle and you're like, where's my freaking amazing life? Mm. Well, you never allowed it to show up. So do nothing for six months. Let the good stuff come. Sage wisdom indeed. Uh, Ryan, you've written a book. Yeah. Uh, Start to a million. Am I getting the name right? It's Start called 12 to Months to $1 million. Thank you. 12 so Months it, to $1 million. It is the roadmap to going from nothing to a million dollar business in 12 months. Roadmap, Matt and I kind of pioneered. I've literally had hundreds of people tell me that they build million dollar businesses just following we documented the whole business on my podcast. So we kind of tracked what we were doing and uh, hundreds of people say they followed it and built million dollar businesses doing it. So I uh, wrote fantastic. a book on the topic. Yeah. It's That's currently fantastic. the number one business book in, uh, in America. Um, so uh, it's doing really well. I'm really proud of it. Congratulations. That's Thank awesome. You. And, and it's you. the seven figure number is so, it's such a threshold for, for a lot of people, but it's both aspirational. It's a meaningful number. Right. And, and, and once you get there, you can start to invest in systems and, and, and it starts to build from there. So an amazing, uh, amazing resource and, and capitalism.com uh, just talk a little bit about what people will find there. And, and uh, sure. they, they can find the podcast, obviously what else can they find there? I, I believe in capitalism. I believe in entrepreneurship. I believe in, I believe in creating change through business. So capitalism.com is both my media property for entrepreneurs, like my YouTube channel and my podcast. And it's also my lab where I am teaching to aspiring entrepreneurs, but I'm also investing in them. I have a fund that I raise to invest in physical products companies. And it's, it's like my lab where we are starting investing in and mentoring entrepreneurs because I, I believe that's the fastest way to create change. Awesome. So that, that's what we do at capitalism.com. 
And the website, yeah, capitalism.com. We'll put that in the show notes. Ryan, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for sharing with such candor and humility. It was uh, a real, a real, uh, John, real life's th- lesson. Thank you so much. I so respect what you do. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.